Just a heads up, y'all. The first part of today's episode contains audio of a legal wolf hunt. Please be advised. If this is upsetting to you, consider fast-forwarding the first minute or so. Well, no wolves. No owls. I gotta start heading back. Sun's going over the hill. I don't have any more time to go any farther. But I will say that at least I got kind of a, a waypoint where they're hanging out. Whew. The thrill of the hunt. Fair chase. Time outside in the woods, exploring new places, following animals across the hill and the stream. You're listening to audio of a legal wolf hunt and an experienced hunter who is trying to locate a wolf pack. While I've never hunted wolves personally, I certainly know this feeling. I'm intimate with it, of being out, connected to the land, looking for sign, chasing elk and deer that have put meat on the table. Game on! I found him. Oh. Yes. It took me only two days to find him. Get back there as close as I could where I heard the wolves howling last. Find a good open spot and predator call. Right now, the sound you're hearing, this particular hunter using a, a call to mimic the sound of a prey animal to draw in wolves and get a clean shot. So I set up, really quietly set up the call, and ran it, and nothing was coming in. I'm like, man, they smelt me, they smelt me. And then I turned off the call, I'm like, I don't know. But I kept this camera running, and all of a sudden, I start seeing wolf heads. I'm like, okay, just stay, like, this is, it's gonna happen here soon. And, and they start getting closer and closer and closer. Welcome back to Working Wild You, a show where we explore what it means to share the working landscape with people and wildlife from the crossroads of culture and science. I'm Jared Beaver. And I'm Alex Few. So hunting is challenging in and of itself, but when you start talking about wolves, they move quickly. They're particularly crafty, they're intelligent, and wary of humans. This makes them prone to bolt at the first sign, scent, or whiff of any kind of disturbance. And perhaps the most famous wolf hunt in history would be that of Aldo Leopold. Only the mountain has lived long enough to listen objectively to the howl of a wolf. My own conviction on this score dates from the day I saw a wolf die. In those days, we had never heard of passing up the chance to kill a wolf. In a second, we were pumping lead into the pack, but with more excitement than accuracy. When our rifles were empty, the whole wolf was down and a pup was dragging a leg into the impassable slide rocks. We reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then and have known ever since that there was something new to me in those eyes, something known only to her and to the mountain. Hunting has an energy of its own, particularly with wolves. So you can understand why it can be really challenging to create a shared vision for hunting wolves. 
we're going to jump into one of the most controversial topics around wolves. So are you ready? Here we go. The goal was to recover the population, get them off the endangered species list, and go into the routine management of wildlife. And that's the infinitely quotable Ed Banks, retired U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service wolf recovery coordinator, whose voice you've already heard a lot this season. Which for most wildlife, or a lot of it, includes public harvest and public participation in terms of defense of life and property laws, uh, hunting seasons, all that kind of stuff. While hunting may be a tough pill for some to swallow, it makes much of wildlife management in the American West tick. Not just the West, all of North America, really. The North American model of conservation is how hundreds of species pay their own way. For instance, I buy hunting licenses and tags every year, and that money goes back into state wildlife agencies for the management, conservation, and protection of their habitats. And it's not just hunting. A federal tax collected on gun and ammunition sales also goes back to the state wildlife agencies to support wildlife conservation. And the amount of this federal tax that goes back into the state partly depends on the number of hunting licenses sold in that state. So what I always tell my classes is if you really care about wildlife and conservation, whether you hunt or not, go buy a license. But let's take a big step back because we have to clarify what we mean when we say the North American model for wildlife conservation. The North American model of wildlife conservation is essentially a set of principles that when collectively applied has led to the form, function, and successes of wildlife conservation and management in the United States. And it's the success of the North American model that over the last 100 years or so has led to the recovery of elk, deer, bighorn sheep, and many other game species. In fact, where we're sitting right now we have one of the greatest collections of ungulates and large predators in the world. And in many respects, we have the turn of the 20th century high society hunters, think Theodore Roosevelt and George Bird Grinnell, to thank for this model. They were some of the first Anglo-American conservationists. They were motivated by seeing unregulated market-based hunting destroy many of the species they cherished and wanted to do something about it. They enjoyed hunting these animals and wanted to make sure they could continue to do so into the future. This sense of ownership really stems from a series of Supreme Court rulings during the mid to late 1800s that solidified wildlife as being held in public trust. That means that the state government is the trustee to hold and manage wildlife for the benefit of the public. And this really got hunters involved. These hunter conservationist types successfully lobbied Congress to eliminate market hunting in the early 1900s and set the stage for science-based regulated wildlife hunting. With regulated hunting tags and gun sales bringing in funds to state wildlife managers, they were able to invest in bringing species such as elk and deer that were previously decimated by unregulated hunting back to prominence. And following the successful recovery of these game animals, which were often prey species, we get back to wolves in this conversation. And the states pretty much promised they would manage wolves just like other species, because wolves are just an animal. I mean, they really don't have any special powers for anything. They're just an animal. To many folks, wolves are viewed as different than just an animal. They're magical, mythical creatures. 
And folks are passionate about individual animals. Yeah, and then to some, they're a symbol of death, destruction, or just plain heartburn. So how do we reconcile these two views within the context of hunting? Honestly, I'm not sure we can. Many folks don't want to see wolves hunted or to be welcomed into this model at all. But just about every other species that has been successfully recovered is hunted under this model. And in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, wolf populations were stable or increasing while being hunted. Right now, hunting is being used as a tool successfully for managing wolf populations. But now that same tool is the focal point and you have two sides wanting to be more extreme with our hunting or hunting removed altogether. That's right, Jared. To some people, they only see two options for wolf management. But in reality, as with most things, the path forward is likely to be found somewhere in the middle. We'll be right back as we jump into the science of state-based wolf management in Wyoming. Ooh, this is going to be good. Stay tuned. Working Wild U is a proud part of Natural Resources University, a podcast network delivering science-based information for your natural resource management. Other current network series include Timber University, Fish University, Deer University, Fire University, and Habitat University. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So, state-based wolf management. Yep, we're talking about hunting. We just established that it has helped make our whole system of wildlife management work. And it can be a really important tool to manage carnivore populations in shared and working landscapes. So let me clarify here. In this episode, we are only talking about public hunting. That's Joe or Jill Public tracking wolves with a rifle and shooting individual animals. That is not the same thing as professional wildlife managers using lethal removal to respond to wolf conflicts. That's a whole nother topic, and we'll talk about it in later episodes. So let's go to Wyoming and take a deep dive into how that state is managing wolves. I'm a large carnivore biologist for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, uh, primarily responsible for overseeing the, the wolf monitoring and management program. So we tracked Ken down for an interview after he'd been out all morning tracking down a wolf whose radio collar was emitting a mortality signal. So the collar had stopped moving. So I was out this morning checking that collar and to see if there was a dead wolf. And it ends up uh, that the actual release mechanism on the collar had malfunctioned. So the collar had just fallen off. Wildlife managers put collars on wolves and and other animals, not only to track their movements and distribution on the landscape, but to get data from all sorts of measurements, from total count of wolf packs, to life histories, to survival, uh, reproductive success. And in Wyoming, it's Ken's responsibility to keep count of the number of wolves in the state. People generally assume is that we're producing a population estimate every year. I would say it's not an estimate, it's actually a census. And what Ken really means by census is that they are trying to count every animal. We've counted every wolf that, um, that goes into that census 
Uh, so it's not a we think there's this many. It's, it's a we know there's at least this many. That means folks with Wyoming Game and Fish are out there on snowmobiles in the winter, monitoring denning sites and up in helicopters, netting wolves to put collars on each and every pack in the northwest portion of the state. And they're doing this every year to make sure their numbers are correct. This census is what really sets Wyoming apart from these other states like Montana, who now uses population models to estimate the actual number of wolves. To be specific here, Wyoming only needs to count wolves in the northwest corner of the state, an area managed through hunting as the trophy game management area. This area, by design, happens to coincide with some of the best wolf habitat in the state and is the area where tightly managed wolf hunts are keeping wolves near their population goal. So this part of Wyoming, outside of Yellowstone, is much smaller than the area wolves currently occupy in either Montana or Idaho. So they're using a different way to count wolves. And in Montana, for example, they're now using a model to estimate the population size. And in 2021, that population estimate was between 1,043 and 1,258 wolves. Basically, the population has grown so much, it's no longer practical or even feasible to perform a minimum count like Wyoming. Basically, what you're saying, Alex, is that the population of wolves in Montana is just simply too big to count every single one. You got it, Jared. So let's take it back to Wyoming, where the wolf population is smaller. There's been a lot of discussion from groups that didn't want delisting, saying you can't trust the states, you can't trust the states, you can't trust the states. And Wyoming is stuck with our plan and and implemented it just as we committed to. Here is where Wyoming's wolf management is different. Within its original wolf recovery plan, Wyoming included a population management objective, basically telling the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Hey, we'll recover wolves to the population objectives set under the Endangered Species Act. But we're not going to go much higher. So Wyoming charted its own course with a plan to keep the population within the trophy management area, around 150 wolves and 10 breeding pairs, to prevent relisting. And again, this trophy management area, we're talking the northwest corner of the state around Yellowstone. And outside of the trophy management area, the legislature took recommendations from a stakeholder group and designated about 80% of the state as the predator zone, where wolves can be hunted by any means necessary at any time of the year. This is an area where the Wyoming Game and Fish Department doesn't have management authority, and instead, it's in the hands of the Wyoming Department of Agriculture. So wolves are resilient and wolves are still expanding uh, to other areas um, in the process of through areas designated as predatory animals. So, you know, wolves recolonize Colorado through the predatory animal area. Remembering back to episode four, the predator management area and managing wolves so close to the relisting threshold is one of the reasons it took so long for wolves to be delisted from the Endangered Species Act in Wyoming in the first place. But in 2017, they finally got the go-ahead from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that turned over wolf management to the state. And to maintain a stable population below carrying capacity and near the relisting threshold year to year, they really invest in getting that count just right. 
And that's why the census information is so important. The more wolves we have in the population, the more are likely to die, the higher proportion are likely to die from non-hunting human causes, largely related to conflict with livestock. Mm -hmm. um, because the more wolves we've had, the more conflict we've had. And so we take that relationship, which on this graph just shows you this increase. More wolves means more, a higher proportion will die from non-hunting human causes. And so we can estimate what impact that's gonna have. Well, in essence, what we do is put that population objective to work um, and, and really in a very simple, you could call it population model, predictive population model, take your initial population, estimate what it would take to stabilize that population based on the data, estimate how many wolves are gonna die from other human causes, do the math on that, and come up with a, a wolf mortality limit for hunting that should result in us being around our population objective at the end of the year. So, as Ken mentioned, there are some benefits to maintaining a wolf population below carrying capacity through tightly regulated hunting. And the benefit is that there's less livestock conflict and less subsequent lethal control of wolves. And in addition to that, they're finding that there's a less chance for large disease outbreaks that are often population dependent, like canine distemper. And through this form of management, informed by a yearly census, they can be close to certain that they'll keep 10 breeding pairs and 150 wolves in the state at the end of the year. So every year, it not only gets tested by me as, as I run through the numbers, but it gets tested by the public as they see the results. Mm. And as we talk about those results, in other words, saying whether we're messing it up or missing the mark or all that, um, we face that test every year. So let's talk about wolf ranges for a second. They cross a lot of different property ownership and stakeholders. And anytime you have uncertainty in the information, particularly around population numbers, you can get conflict. And so accurate and transparent information can go a long way into diffusing these conflicts surrounding wolves. There's very real data that demonstrates that our management approach is working to regulate and limit conflicts with livestock, which then allows that entity in the public sphere to be more tolerant of wolves, right? When you have more wolves and then more conflict, there may be pushback against management agencies. But when we're talking about asking folks who work the land to do so alongside wolves, we also need to think about having the broader public accept all of the tools in the toolbox, and that can include hunting. Yet some folks are repulsed by the concept of hunting and fishing simply as a means of obtaining food or, or even managing populations. And a lot of this stems from Bambi syndrome. You remember Bambi, right? Hello, friend Al. Don't you remember me? Why, it, it's the young prince, Bambi. <laughs> oh yeah, I've got kids, so definitely. And this is one Disney movie not shown in my house. So the 1942 animated Disney movie Bambi was the first time a major anti-hunting message reached the general public. It is man 
He is here again. There are many this time. We must go deep into the forest. Hurry, follow me. The movie conveyed two clear messages. First, wild nature becomes a garden of Eden when left free of human influence. And second, humans, in the form of hunters, were depicted as cruel, indifferent, and generally uneducated to the forest and its wildlife. And this helped give rise to an anthropomorphic view of nature. And now, we're dealing with the notion that legal and ethical rights apply to animals the same way as it does humans. And it's creating a disconnect for biologists and managers who are trying to manage at the population level while a growing number of folks are individualizing wildlife. Hunters are well known for putting their money where their mouth is. And to continue on this line of thought, if wolf advocates and non-consumptive users desire increased influence in wildlife management decisions, pre-litigation, then they should share some of the financial burden of conserving wildlife. But until that happens, hunting and the sale of firearms and ammunition will continue to be the major source of funding for wildlife conservation in the United States. And this all comes back to wildlife values and what tools the American people will tolerate to minimize conflicts with livestock. Let's be honest here. A lot of wildlife managers and biologists, included David Meech, renowned wolf conservationist and founder of the International Wolf Center, agree. It's not going to be hunting that threatens wolf populations again. It's going to be habitat loss. It's a catch-22, you know. I mean, if you really love wolves and want them on the landscape, then you have to ask what's the best route for that. Would you rather have wolves that are protected and not tolerated by the local community? Or would you rather have a delisted wolf population with a public that's more tolerant with more potential to progressively be not only tolerant of wolves but also accepting and maybe even appreciative of having wolves in the landscape. Um, I get probably more comments now than I used to about, you know, I'm glad wolves are here. They need to be managed, but I'm glad they're here. And I think that's only possible if wolves are managed. So there has to be that balance, because either way, it's humans that are driving that approach. I mean, wolves were brought here by humans. Wolves live or die by the hand of humans. Um, You know, wolves live or die in Yellowstone because they live within a park delineated by humans, with regulations put down by humans, I think has to be a delisted wolf population. Delisted. I heard that too. Ken says that because state management is a way to balance the biological needs of a species with the social needs specific to a state. Completely agree. But also, when wolves are delisted, hunters, like myself, need to try and keep a good rep. But let's leave fair chase for a different day. So hunters and state managers need to understand that every move they make in the first few years after delisting will come under intense scrutiny. <laughs> a few years, more like few decades. Yeah, well, well-regulated wolf hunting supported by science can be an adaptive tool to manage populations. And hunting can actually build tolerance of local communities for the presence of wolves. Simply put, 
Humans have modified the checks and balances in natural systems. We've removed animals, reintroduced animals, controlled diseases, and suppressed hunting in large parts of the West. At the end of the day, harvesting animals is a useful and cost-effective means of mitigating density-dependent issues like starvation, cannibalization, and diseases like distemper. In addition to these density-dependent issues, can also address some of the social issues that restoring wolves bring up on working lands. So while the agricultural community only makes up 1.3% of the population in the United States, they're the ones providing habitat for wolves outside of federally protected areas. You know, this whole conversation reminds me of a quote that I often use in my classes that describes the hunter paradox. It basically goes, the people who love plants are the same ones who spend hours pruning and killing them. The people who love vegetables are the same ones that grow, kill, and eat them. And the men and women who most love wildlife, who invest in their habitat and protection, also kill and eat them. And I completely agree. It reminds me about how farmers and ranchers are like hunters. They live close to the land. They understand the full community of life that the land depends upon, and they love it. And they also have to harvest so that we all can eat. It's important stuff. State management of wolves can live inside this hunter's paradox, where sportsmen and women can appreciate wolves by hunting them, and in turn, support their management and ultimately their existence in perpetuity on the landscape. And you know, one of the ways to make all this work is to make it collaborative. When we go through thoughtful, scientifically informed collaborative processes with input from communities, wildlife agencies, and tribes, states will be able to determine sustainable hunting quotas that will not hurt wolves' ability to thrive in the West. In fact, I think it can actually help. And this model of hunting, this is really different than what happened in the 2021 legislative sessions in Montana and Idaho. I think that's a great topic for us to really take a deep dive into on our next episode, where we talk about some of the recent bills liberalizing hunting in places like Montana and Idaho that have really set off some alarms across the West and potentially further politicized an already polarizing issue. So we'll be talking about that next time. Stay tuned. Working Wild U is a production of Montana State University Extension and Western Landowners Alliance, with support from the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation, Western SARE, and listeners like you. Today's episode was directed and edited by Zach Altman and produced by Matthew Collins, Zach Altman, Alex Few, Jared Beaver, and Abby Nelson. Our hosts are Jared Beaver and Alex Few. Lewis Wirtz is our executive producer. Music is from Artlist and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Kathleen Shannon for helping edit this episode. Follow Working Wild U on social media for updates and explore our show notes and bonus content on our website at workingwild.us. Please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend or neighbor. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.